And uh, that's, that's what it is. It is God's Word, the looking at God's Word. Well, it says God's Word will set you free. So that's why we go through whole books here. We, we don't have pet verses that we harp on every week, week in and week out ad nauseum. We're going through whole books because the Word sets you free. Amen? All right. So how many of you can identify with this title? When you do what you don't want to do. Anybody yet this year done what you knew you shouldn't? And the rest of you, you liars, liars. Okay. So tonight we're going to look, Paul's going to give us an autobiographical sketch of what he went through himself. And it's, it's very honest, very transparent, it's great stuff, so let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. And thank you, Lord, that there's an answer for when we do what we don't want to do. There is an answer to that struggle within all of us. And so, Lord, open your word to us. Let the word shine. Speak to us tonight in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, tell your neighbor, there's hope for you. <laughs> I didn't tell you to say there's hope for even you. All right. Well, let's look at this because chapter 7 is powerful. Last time we saw in chapter 6 that our old man, the old nature, has been crucified with Christ. Therefore, the believer is reckoned to be dead indeed to sin. Now, y'all remember that, and if you weren't here, I would encourage you to get that CD and listen to it. Wednesday nights, we're just teaching the Word of God. You're going to get the Word if you get the CD from Wednesday nights. And so we saw that the old man was crucified with Jesus. He said, you're to reckon it to be so. So for you to sin, you've got to allow the old man to come down off the cross for you to live a sinful lifestyle. And that's the idea. The old song says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the Bible tells us, yes, you were there. And Jesus nailed your old man, the old man of sin, the old man of depravity, was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And you are to reckon it to be so. And who did the nailing? God did. You didn't nail yourself to the cross. You can't do that. God nailed you, your old man, the sin nature, nailed him to the cross. So that's the idea. So when you get tempted to sin, the old man says you need to sin, or I want to go do this, I want to go do that, I want to involve myself in what you used to do, you say to the old man, you're crucified. That's the idea. You are crucified. And he says, oh, really? And then you're to say, I reckon I reckon, I reckon it to be so. That's the idea. So see, Paul was Southern before we were. All right. Now, in chapter 7, Paul vividly describes men as being one of three things. And everyone in here and everyone listening by radio is in one of these three categories. Natural, carnal, or spiritual. Well, what are they? The natural man he talks about, we're going to see that. He mentions the natural man. What's that? It's the unsaved man. And the unsaved man can rise no higher than his intellectual, moral, or personal willpower can lift him. 
The natural man, the unsaved man, is left to his own devices and never, ever, ever does he successfully extricate himself from sin. He can't do it. He's ruled by his senses. Now the Bible tells us that most of the world is in this category, the natural man. And i got to tell you, a lot of church folks, they go to church day in and day out, week in and week out, they've never been saved. Our churches are full of people who have never been saved. They think walking into a building saves them. Sitting in a church service somehow makes them right with God. But no, you can't remain a natural man and be saved. Then he mentions the carnal man. The carnal man is a saved man who's still dominated at least partially by the power of sin and under the control of the old nature. Now, I would call this person the, the cultural Christian as opposed to the biblical Christian. The cultural Christian, they may be saved. They may have said, Jesus, I believe, and said, forgive me of my sins, and they're saved, but they have never learned to walk in the Spirit. And their ideas and their worldview are shaped and molded by the culture and not by the Word. And I'm going to just report to you tonight that our churches are full of those. We're watching whole denominations now. Whole denominations cave in to the pressure of the culture. I read that the Presbyterians are meeting uh, sometime this week or next week in the very near future to decide whether or not, of course, they should marry same-sex couples or ordain people living in homosexuality or lesbianism. Well... I don't know about you, but I don't want to sit out there and have somebody step into the pulpit who I know is living in active sin uh, to deliver me the Word of God. Uh, that's crazy, baby. That's crazy. And yet, the culture is caving in, or the culture is influencing the church instead of the church influencing the culture. And we're supposed to be shaping them, not them shaping us. So the carnal man, he's saved, but he, he still lives under the rule of sin. He doesn't understand his old man was crucified with Christ. So he lives a carnal life. You look at him and you look at lost people and you can't tell much difference. Uh, if, if they tell you they're saved, sometimes you're as surprised as anybody else. Well, I didn't know that because I sure can't tell. That's the carnal man. Now the spiritual man is where we all want to be. That's the third one. The spiritual man is the believer whose life is controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's the spiritual man or woman whose lives are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Romans 8 is going to be all about. Okay? Now, these three men are in view in Romans 7. First, the apostle tells us that believers are dead to the law. That is, they are dead when he says the law. And we're going to hear this over and over again in chapter 7. When you read the words, the law, in Romans 7, it's talking about the commandments, and it's talking about the notion that we have got to perform our way into favor with God. That we are made righteous by our own actions. That it is upon us. The, the, the pressure is on us to live 
out the commandments. So he's going to tell us that we are dead to the law. Dead to the notion that we've got to achieve our own righteousness. The law, the law no longer wields authority over us and its demands that we obey it in our own strength. Because that's what killed Paul when he was Saul. That's what killed everybody up to the time of grace. They were trying to live out the law and they couldn't do it. That our level of righteousness hinges on our own performance. That's what the law was about. He says in verse 1, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? Now catch where he's going now. Because say with me again, I'm dead. That my old man was crucified with Christ. So the old man is dead. Now watch. He says, I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he's alive. Now naturally, when a person dies, the law, or any laws for that matter, have no more power over that person. You don't have to worry about speeding when you're dead. Right? They are, they are dead to it, that is, dead to the law, and the law is dead to them. It doesn't matter. Law doesn't pertain to dead people. A book of laws is an irrelevant document to a dead person. Keeping that in mind, Paul now gives us an illustration involving marriage. Watch this. He says, for example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. She's not married anymore because he's dead. So then, verse 3, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress even though she marries another man. All right, simple Simon, right? Everybody gets it. Now let's look. Picture for a moment an unhappy marriage in which the marriage vows have become a hated, resented burden. We've all seen that, right? Now watch this. Yet even so, there's no release from this bondage in God's eyes until death severs the relationship. The law of marriage, the law of marriage holds the couple firm and fast in God's sight. The law holds them firm. But when one of the two dies, the other is set free from the marriage vows. Now the death of the one makes void the other's status as a spouse in the eyes of the law. All right? Because death has happened. Now, Paul is making the case that the law's power ends at death. The law being the commandments and their insistence that you obey them or you're not righteous. You got that? That's what the law means. When they received those laws from, from Moses, they looked at them and said, Oh, now we know what God wants. And it didn't take long before they realized, we can't live up to this. We cannot. If, if, right when I get this one right, I fail at this one. And James comes along and tells us, if you fail at one, you fail at all of them. Well, then what are we supposed to do? I'm going to show you that in a minute. But here we are. They got the commandments and they said, Praise God, his face was glowing in the dark. That is Moses. He comes down from the mount. 
He gives us the law. Now we know what God wants. But it turned out to be something that beat them up every single day because they couldn't do it. So Paul is saying that that law, its power, ends in death when one of the two dies. The law represents performance religion where one is forced to try to be righteous. Show me a cult and I'll show you in the teaching of that cult cult somewhere where you've got to do something to be saved. Not so in Christianity. You don't have to do anything to be saved but repent and turn to the one who did it all. But every cult, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, you name it, there is a performance aspect to it that you've got to live up to or you're not saved. Not in Christianity. It's all of grace, none of works. Okay? Now watch. So the law represents performance religion where one is forced to try to be righteous, try to live up to God's standard in his own strength and willpower. It is indeed a miserable marriage. If you're married to the law, if, if, if you think you're going to get to heaven by how you act, by how you behave, by you trying to live up to God's standards, in your own strength, you are in a miserable coupling. You're in a miserable marriage. Okay? But the spiritual believer knows an easier way to victory. Look what he says in verse 4. So, my brothers, you also, say it with me, everybody, died. How would you die the law? Through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. When God crucified your old man to the cross, that old man, in God's reckoning, died. And when he died, you got liberated from the law are you there now you say well then the old testament's no good no that's not what i'm saying at all because jesus said i didn't come to destroy the law but to fulfill the law and he said not one jot or one tittle will pass away till all of the law be fulfilled here's what jesus did he picked up the weight we couldn't pick up he carried the load we couldn't carry he lived a perfect life without ever sinning one solitary time now, he died in perfect righteousness and purity. He rose from the dead, resurrected. And what does God say? Now, when Jesus was crucified at the cross, I nailed the old man of sin on the cross with him. And that old man of sin died. So you know what? You've been delivered from having to live up to the law yourself to be saved by your own works your own performance because you're dead and dead people don't have to worry about law you get it now watch he says so my brothers you also died to the law through the body of christ that you might belong to another god had to set you free from the law to join you to jesus to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God when a person turns to Christ for forgiveness and is justified by grace through faith the claims of the law are broken that is great do you know how many people sit in church week after week 
just feeling like, man, all week long I blew it. All week long I messed up. I didn't live up. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I'm a mess. I'm a failure. I'm no good. God can't love me anymore. I surely can't go tell other people about him because all I ever do is fail. I'm in a failure cycle. I just, I, I'm, I'm never right. I'm never righteous. I can never attain to what the word reveals to me. And they don't get that by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, not of works, not of works, not of works, not of works. Lest you should boast and say, from my own works, I got myself saved. No, you could live to be a million and you would not get yourself saved. As soon as you put your faith in Christ, God says, all right, I take his perfect life and I impute it to you. So that I am my beloved's and he is mine. As a matter of fact, our righteousness is no longer dependent upon our own performance. I wish that revelation could jolt some of you. You know, Christians are so good about saying, boy, I'm so convicted about sin. Can, can you get convicted about your righteousness? Can you get convicted about that? Can you just realize, no, I'm not perfect, but... I am in, he made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, it's no longer a performance religion. It's a grace religion. Because we were never able to fully obey the law in the first place. The old miserable marriage to sin hateful and unbearable and made even worse by the law which only served to magnify the sinfulness of our sin is over that marriage is now dissolved <laughs> not by divorce but by death well who died you well pastor jeff i don't feel dead doesn't matter you're to reckon it so you're not going on feeling you're going on reckoning and reckoning is based in faith so so every day you need to say i reckon i reckon well i don't feel dead to sin but i reckon i am and and, and when you get tempted to go do something or think something or say something and the old man is saying take me down off this cross you say i reckon you're dead that's the idea this is where paul the apostle lived this was his way of life. And he's giving us this by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. The believer is married to another. Let's remember back a moment. Think back with me. Do you recall the day the Holy Spirit came and pointed you to God's dear son? I was in a juvenile home. I was in a juvenile home without God and without hope. I don't know where you were, but I know where I was. You remember when he came and pointed you to God's dear son? And he prompted you to call on him for forgiveness. Do you remember that day? If you don't remember that day, you ought to remember that day. If you're married, you remember your marriage? You better remember that marriage. If you don't remember it, don't tell the person next to you you don't remember it. There are some things that ought to be defining moments. Do you remember that day when you got convicted and the Holy Spirit said, Turn to Jesus? And you know what you did? In essence, the Spirit was saying to you, do you take this man to be your Savior? 
Will you take him for richer or for poorer, for sickness or for health, for better or for worse, for time and eternity? The Holy Spirit did the wedding. Do you remember this? And, and you didn't know it, but he was standing right there because no man comes to Jesus, to, to Jesus except the Spirit draws him. So the Spirit drew you to him and then said, Do you take this capital M man, this Savior, to be your Savior? Better or worse, thick and thin, through it all, no matter what, I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. The world behind me, the cross before me, Remember that? You said, I do. And in that moment, the old marriage to sin was dissolved. How? You died. And you were married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead. Give the Lord a hand of praise. This is powerful stuff. So I want you to say with me, Christian friend, I'm married. And you single folks, you may be single horizontally, but you're not single vertically. You've got a bridegroom, and you the bride. And you're married. And you know what? The ring was the Holy Ghost. You were sealed by the Holy Ghost to the day of redemption. The ring is on your spirit. And you've been married. And the Bible says it's the earnest of our redemption. Actually, he's the engagement ring. Because the full deal is coming soon and very soon. Now watch this. Now the believer belongs to Christ. And our love, our life, and our loyalty all belong to him. Think of it that way. That you're married. When you walk out of the door every morning, you're married. You're married to Jesus. Literally. You're married to Jesus. Rather than living under the performance demanding tyranny of the law, the believer now lives on the terms of intimate relationship with that risen one who has canceled sin and conquered death and satisfied the law. So when I get up in the morning, and every morning I, when I get up, I go straight out to our patio, unless it's pouring rain or something, but decent weather, I'm out there, and the first thing I do is open the Bible and I fellowship with the Lord. Now, am I fellowshipping with him to get right or am I fellowshipping with him to get relationship I'm fellowshipping with him to get relationship because I've been made right I don't have to work all day to get right we're not in a gotta make myself right today we're in a need to cultivate my relationship today because I'm married. You're married. You're married. Look at verse 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, that is the law, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And I can't tell you what this meant to Paul. He lived all of his life under this tyranny of the law. And when he realized it was by grace and not by works, man, he would kill you if you tried to change that truth. Nothing made him matter. 
Let's be clear, it's not the law that God has put to death. God didn't put the law to death because the law is good. It's the believer that got killed. You done been killed. Instead of the pressure to perform and conform to the letter, which is the rules of conduct demanded by the law, the believer now indwelt by the Holy Spirit fulfills the spirit of the law. In other words, the believer now walks by grace, not rules, not regulations. That's why so many people don't come to church because they, they think if they come to church, they're going to get a bunch of rules and regulations. And the devil has so lied to them and twisted the truth of Christianity. It is not coming to church and us handing you a little pamphlet of rules and regulations. It is, you come to church, and we're going to introduce you to amazing, crazy grace that, that washes your sin away and moves you from tyranny to freedom. All right, our struggle with sin. Now, next, Paul makes clear that just because the law revealed to us our sinfulness, it doesn't make the law bad. He says in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law, is the law sin because it, it did what it did to us, you know, put us under that bondage? No. He says, certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Do you all get that? With truth comes responsibility. You know, we got a wood floor. And it was just one of our rooms, a wooden floor. And... I love that wooden floor. It's dark wood. I love that dark wood floor until sunlight hits it because I have dogs. That wood floor looks great in the shade, but when the sun hits it, I go, oh, no. I mean, I've got to clean it like once every day or two at least because I see all these things when the light hits it. So I say, close those shades. <laughs> but here's what he's saying. When the light of the law hit us, we went, <gasps> close those shades. That's why some people won't come to church, because the blinds get opened, and the sun comes in, and they go, oh, no. So they go scurrying for the dark again. Now watch this. He said, the law showed me the exceeding sinfulness of my sin. The proposal that the law was sin was ridiculous to Paul. The law was not a bad thing. What it revealed is what was bad. For the law exposed and the law highlighted the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. See, before the law came, folks, they didn't really know for sure what God liked or didn't like or what was good or what wasn't. It was, it was fuzzier. It was, it was uh, foggier. But when the law came, there was no debate. Now I know exactly what's wrong, exactly what's right, exactly what God requires. Paul says, I did not fully realize that I was covetous until the law made it clear to me that I was covetous. The law, in fact, was designed to bring man to the end of himself and all of his own efforts. God didn't give us the law so that we would perfectly obey it. He knew we couldn't. He gave it to show us our desperate need for grace. The law defines sin. It defines it and makes us aware of it. Once we see the exceeding sinfulness of our sin and our helplessness in overcoming it, 
the law drives us to Christ. Now watch this, what it says about Jesus. Jesus said, let me tell you what the problem is. Light came into the world, and men loved darkness more than light. You get that? Why did they kill Jesus? Because he was the one that opened up the shades. And he was the light, and, and, and you got around him, and your whole life was laid out in front of him. So they didn't like that. And you know what our culture is doing right now? Doing everything in the world to close the shades. Shut the church up. Get the Word of God out of the public uh, arena. Get it out of school. Get it out of the nativity scenes, out of the public square. Get the light out because we want to live in the dark. That's all that it is. Men love darkness more than light. So he's saying this is what the law did. Therefore, he says, look at Galatians 3, verse 24. Here's the purpose of the law. Paul says, quote, Therefore, the law was our tutor, our teacher, our disciplinarian to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Because forget living it, you're not going to be able to do it. You've got to be justified by faith. There came a time in Paul's life when he utterly came to an end of himself, and that's a great time for all of us. When you come to the end of yourself, when you realize there's evil in me, I can't do the right thing on my own. Now, I can not get a traffic ticket. I can be faithful in marriage. I can hold a job. I can love my kids. But in God's eyes, all fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. So, there reaches a time if God's gracious where you come to an end of yourself. You go, can't do it. I'm undone. I can't live up. I'm in a corner. Can't get out. God says, good. Look up. This is what he describes in the following verses. Look what happened to him, verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity of me being a sinner, afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Because you don't know what sin is. But when the law comes, you know. He says, verse 9, once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, Sin sprang to life, and I died because the commandment nailed me. He says, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death to me because the, the, the shades were opened, and I saw there's no hope. I can't get right. I cannot live it. As a natural unsaved man, Paul found that the law exposed the hidden nature of sin by first revealing to him his own sinful nature. The great function, folks, of the Mosaic law is to expose sin. That's why the kiddos need it on the school walls. Because if, if they never hear it, they never know it, how are they going to know what is right or wrong to God? You're, you're turning them over to their own depraved nature. But look here. The great function of the Mosaic law was to expose your sin. Men try to cover sin, excuse it, camouflage it. They call sin by other names. They remove the skull and crossbones label from the bottle of sin and replace it with something attractive and appealing. But the Mosaic law will not allow you to do this and get away with it. 
The function of the law is to give sin its proper name and expose it for what it is. That's why I want to talk to, when I talk to people about Jesus now, I don't mess around with it. Do you believe? And, and let's talk about all the Eastern religions and all this. I just say, what are you going to do with your sin? Well, I don't have sin. Yes, you do. And it's very simple. Have you ever lied? Yes. Well, then you're a sinner and you're lost. Now, well, everybody lies. You're right. They're all sinners. Have you ever stolen? Have you ever just go through some of the commandments? They've all broken them. And then once they say, well, yeah, okay, I'm a sinner, then, then what are you going to do with it? Because you've got to do something with your sin. It's on your back. Well, I'll just be a good person. You can't be a good person. You're a sinner. The function of the law is to give sin its proper name and expose it for what it is. Paul next points out another fact about the law. It actually provokes sin. You ever had somebody tell you, don't do that? And then next thing you knew, you want it real bad just to go on and do it. Have you ever noticed this with your kids? Don't do that. And they make up their mind to go do it. Because you know what the law does? It, it, it provokes sin. When you hear what's wrong, something in you, that fallen nature just wants to go do it. It provokes sin. He, look what he says. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment it put me to death. So then, he says in verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Now, Paul then asks another question. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Sin was the culprit, not the law. One of the Supreme Court justices, when they took the law down from the school walls, said, I'm afraid lest they see it, it warped their minds, revealing his warped mind. Because what they did, they didn't take the culprit off the wall. They turned the culprit loose in the schools when they took the, the truth off the, law, the wall. Now, the law is good, and only because it is good can it expose the sinfulness of sin. Verse 13, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly, totally, clearly sinful. At this point in chapter 7, Paul switches from past to present, and he continues to explain the relationship between the law and sin. Now let's look at this, because every word in this chapter is inspired by the Holy Spirit. All right? He says in verse 14, We know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. A slave, now listen, church, cannot act on his own will. You tonight, most of you in here are a slave to God. But if you're not saved, you're a slave to sin. There's not a person on earth that's not a slave to one or the other. You say, well, I'm my own person. No, you're not. You're a deceived person if you think that. You're not your own person. You're a slave to God or a slave to sin. Nobody is their own person. You're going to serve one or the other. Now, what's the truth of slavery? You're going to obey the, your master. His noble desires, that is, your noble desire to do what is right, will be overruled and crushed by the one who owns you, and that is sin. Through this illustration of slavery, Paul explains why he was unable to obey the law. As sin's slave, he had to do his master's bidding. No matter how much he delighted in God's law, he was powerless to fulfill it. How many of you, when you were lost, 
ever said these words? Why do I keep doing this? Come on. Why do I keep doing this? Or how about this one? What's wrong with me? Well, here's what was wrong with you. You had a master. Sin. And you were the slave. Now, he said, when that was the case, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Anybody ever felt that? Come on. Would you ever feel that way? You still feel that way sometimes. I know you do. So when you do what you don't want to do and what you did was sinful, it wasn't you. It was the sin nature living in you. So what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. He's describing schizophrenia here. Spiritual schizophrenia. All right? Verse 20, now if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. Now in verses 21 to 25, he transparently lays out an autobiographical account of the struggle in his life between the law of God and the law of sin. Look at this. Both of these laws contended for the mastery of him. The great apostle had been eager to obey the law of God, but the law of sin would not permit it. Listen to his description of the struggle and see if you can amen it or identify with it. So, he says, I find this law at work. When I want to do the right thing, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I want God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Now here's this incredible struggle. We all experience it. You get up every day with the best of intentions. You pray. You put on the armor. You walk out the door. You get in rush hour traffic. Some joker pulls right in front of you, hits their brakes, slows you down, you catch lights because of them. You're late because of them. And you do not feel the Holy Ghost all over you. And you don't feel like blessing and you don't feel like loving. And things come out of your mouth and enter your thoughts that, oh my, you can't believe. Okay? You got a battle going on. The law of sin, the law of righteousness. Now, we're going to see next time that chapter 7 is leading to chapter 8. It's showing us the struggle, and it's going to give us the answer. Look what he says. Caught in the grip of this intense battle, the apostle cried out for deliverance, and I want you all to read it with me as if it's you. Ready? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You ever feel that way? So he's saying, let me just show you the conflict. Here it is. In my inner man, I want to do the right thing. I want to please God. I want to walk with Him. I want His smile on my life. I want a clear conscience. But right when I want to do that, i got something else here. 
I'm, I, I got two natures I'm dealing with. I'm a little bit schizo. And it's putting me in conflict. And what Paul is doing, he's laying it out saying, all right, then what are we going to do? How? What is the answer to this? And in the same breath, he provides the answer. Say it with me, everybody. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now the frustration of Romans 7 is setting the stage for the triumph of Romans 8. It's a fact of the Christian life that most earnest believers experience the two conditions described by Paul uh, and that it exists in a sort of cycle. Recognition of our inability to live up to our deepest spiritual longings, chapter 7, leads us to cast ourselves upon God's Spirit for power and victory, chapter 8. So chapter 8 is going to begin with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Stand up with me, would you? Now I want you to understand something in closing here. I wanted you standing when I read this because you've got to understand that this is a process. Here it is. This learning to walk in the Spirit is the process of sanctification. It is a gradual and lifelong process as we learn through failure and success, ups and downs, how to depend upon the indwelling Holy Spirit. So then he closes chapter 7 with this. I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Next week we're going to get free. We're going to learn the answer, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you right now for this incredible chapter. Thank you, Lord, that our old man was crucified with Jesus. And we reckon it so. And Lord, thank you that we rose from the spiritual dead with Jesus. And we reckon it so. And thank you, Lord, that when we died on the cross with Jesus, the old man, then we also died to having to perform the law perfectly in order to achieve our own righteousness. And we were married to another. Thank you, Lord, that you are now our beloved and we are yours. Can we lift our hands right now? And I want you to thank your husband, Jesus Christ, who you're married to now. Worship him in Jesus' name. God is so good. Yes, he is. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good. Now let's just sing to him. Sing, I love you so. Sing it now. And I, I love you so.
that makes you joyful, give him a hand of praise one more time. Thank you, Lord.